The AXPX Podcast is brought to you by Charming Beard Coffee. Go to charmingbeard.com and enter in the code AXPX when you buy a bag of their single roasted coffees and get 10% off of your order. Charming Beard Coffee, quality, small batch, single origin coffee for the discerning coffee drinker. Beard not necessarily required. Welcome to another episode of the AXPX Podcast. I am your host, Sean Drager, and with me, uh, finally uh, on California time, Joey Avalos. <laughs> What's up, Sean? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Doing good. My kids are in Saturday school today, so that means I have had a less hectic morning. I've actually been able to kind of ease into the show, Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, so, uh, so good times, good times. Um, a little bit of housekeeping as far as I like last week, I said, we we're going to be talking about the movie, the master. I'm still trying to bring, uh, the, the our, our movie critics trying to get our schedules all matching up. Um, but we'll see if the show even happens. I know you and I talked, uh, Joey about the movie and it, it's, it starts out really great and there's a lot of ideas, but then it kind of fizzles towards the second half. So I'm a little bit you know, it's still mulling the movie over if it even, uh, you know, warrants to, to be talked about, you know. Right. So, so you know, we may or may not do that after seeing the movie. <laughs> so sorry if you rented the movie and watched it. <laughs> and if you did, please email us. Uh, email me, sean at theaxpx.com, and let me know your thoughts and if we even should, uh, you know, pursue getting some critics on board and, and talking about it. But today, this kind of came up out of the blue last week. And I'm really excited to talk to today's guest. Uh, we're talking to um, the Reverend Will Gaffney, PhD. She's a biblical scholar, a seminary professor, and Episcopal, Episcopal priest. Uh, and she's also the author of uh, the book Daughters of Miriam, Women, Prophets in Ancient Israel. And she also contributed to the People's Companion uh, to the Bible and the People's Bible. So I'm interested in checking that out. Uh, well, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Will Gaffney. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, uh, Sean and Joey. Um, yeah. I'm really happy to be talking to you because one of my, my we're, we're talking about mainly the History Channel's presentation of the Bible. And I mentioned in last week's show that the the biggest frustration for me was kind of the whitewashing, quote-unquote, whitewashing of all the characters in the Bible because the history of the Bible, where it takes place, and we even mentioned it. Let me find my sheet of paper here. Um, we even mentioned, I mentioned the, uh, the genographic project uh, in last week's show, and we were talking about evolution, and the genographic project uh, puts the, the beginnings of man in kind of uh, uh, middle to the eastern part of Africa. So I, th I found that very fascinating. And of course, it, you know, the Old Testament especially is kind of chronicling the Israelites who were, you know, Jewish and, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go, in, go into there. But um, so I, I saw your, your blog post called Black Samson and White Women on the History Channel. And I was like, I got to talk to Dr. Gaffney <laughs> about this subject. So, Well, great. Well, let me uh, back up to something sure, you just yeah. said. It's really important to distinguish ancient peoples from modern peoples. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So the ancient Israelites are not Jewish. They are the ancestors of the Jewish people. Israelite religion will become Judaism, but they're not the same thing. Okay, right? yeah. So it's kind of important to, to keep that separate. Yeah, I kind of caught myself. I'm like, uh, I don't, but I don't know enough about this. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad to have you on to illuminate on, uh, us, us on this. Because there's a, just a lot of things people don't, people don't know, you know, about, about the Bible. And, um, and I, I, I'm going to post this on our, on our show notes here. And there was a kind of, someone posted a news story about six minutes long about how most kind of, you know, evangelical Christians just don't really know a lot about the Bible. And they kind of have a certain perspective on the Bible that they get from kind of the, uh, the mainstream, you know, uh, Christianity, and they said that a lot of agnostics and atheists, and even Jewish and um, and Mormon 
people have a lot better understanding on religion and, and the Bible. Um, Dr. Gaffney, what's your background with uh, with with religion and Christianity? It says here that you're uh, an Episcopal priest. You're also a, a seminary professor at a, at a Lutheran college. What's your background with with Christianity? My background is plural and varied. Uh, my mother uh, is a staunch Baptist laywoman. My father's family tradition is Methodist. I went to a uh, Catholic high school. I went to a Quaker college. Um, I was first ordained in the tradition of African Methodism in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which is a sibling of the United Methodists and sort of a distant cousin of the mm -hmm. Episcopal Church. Um, because of my great love uh, for Hebrew, I have spent much time in Jewish community and have been for maybe about 15 years a dues-paying member of a synagogue. I also do a lot of trialogue work with uh, Islam and Judaism. So I have been involved in religious work for much of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, my own uh, faith tradition has taken me through uh, the sort of Methodist Episcopal uh, tract of the broader Anglo-Catholic tradition. Uh, so that's where I am. And I okay. should say that I am a member of a historic congregation, the first black Episcopal church uh, in the United States, quite frankly, uh, in the world, the African Episcopal Church of St. Okay. Thomas, which is an Episcopal church, but shares in that great uh, African-American legacy. Okay. Uh, so yes. Great, great. Um, can you expand on, like, because I... I'm still trying. I'm still learning about all these, all these different. Uh, uh, <laughs> just there's a wide variety of, of of Christianity out there. What what would you describe Episcopal as, as far as the you know, um, the foundation that they that Epi the Episcopal Church stands on? Um, the Episcopal Church is a historic liturgical church that uh, is rooted in Anglo-Catholicism the expression of Catholicism that emerged uh, after the Protestant Reformation because of our uniquely American heritage having had a revolution uh, after which we would not be subject to a British head of our church, we stood up an American version that at the beginning was regarded to be uh, very similar. Uh, time and distance meant that we evolved separately on some things. Uh, famously, uh, we ordained uh, women much earlier and have women bishops here in the United mm -hmm. States, and the Church of England has now has women priests, but is still really struggling over the issue of women bishops. Uh, but we are uh, a church that's deeply rooted in liturgy, deeply rooted in prayer, and deeply rooted in scripture. Mm -hmm. Much of the language of our worship, our prayer book, is taken from scripture. We have lengthy readings from three to four sections of scripture at each worship service, and we regularly pray the words of scripture. And sometimes our members may know the prayers and may not even know uh, that they're reciting scripture as mm -hmm. much as, as they are. That's fascinating. Uh, good stuff. Now. I know that a majority of kind of what I describe as the evangelical Christian church, um, people also maybe say fundamentalist, they have, uh, they believe that the Bible is, is 100% kind of inerrant, that it's the word of God breathed into, in, into words, and and they that's kind of where they stop. They don't dig any deeper. Do you guys have more of a, uh, is it an in, in, in inerrant view of the Bible, or is it or is it something else? Well, let me say on behalf of some of my uh, deeply conservative Christian colleagues who are inerrantists, uh -huh. many of them, the classical understanding of inerrancy is that God's communication to human beings was inerrant. But many of those don't hold that the manuscripts we have and the Bibles we have are inerrant because of the human uh, interaction. Now, there's some who hold the whole process right down to their favorite translation uh, is perfectly inerrant, but not all uh, conservative biblical scholars see it that way. Okay. In terms of the Episcopal Church, we believe that the Word of God is found in Scripture, but that everything in Scripture is not the Word of God. Um, the paradigm that I like to use to explain this is Jesus himself, uh, the teaching that Jesus is the capital W word. And Jesus is also human and divine. And we don't sort of parse Jesus out and say, well, you know, the left hand is kind of human today and the right hand is kind of divine. It's sort of all in there together. And we may judge a particular narrative 
Okay, he's hungry, he's sleeping. These are human things. He's demonstrating great power. These are divine things. But he does all of these in the same body that is in this mystery, human and divine. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, the Bible as the word of God is also human and divine. There would be a sort of logic error to say that the Bible is all divine when Jesus himself is human and divine. That would subjugate Jesus below the Bible. You see what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah. so it's so our way of understanding is that the Bible is human and divine, uh, but that's not necessarily a license to say, okay, we're going to take out this chapter and this verse. Um, we wrestle with them. We may put them in hierarchies to each other and say we're going to be governed by this particular principle. The truth is all Christian communities do that, but all communities are not honest, right? Mm-hmm. So even those communities that say that we are literalists and we believe that every word is infallible, those communities are not telling American soldiers, when you go out to battle, if you see a good-looking girl among the enemy, you can take her home and force her to be your wife, right? Right. right. <laughs> there are parts of the Bible that no one is arguing for living out today contemporarily. Um, we in the Episcopal Church try to be systematic and thoughtful as we wrestle with it. We don't claim to have it right, but okay. we simply acknowledge that the, the biblical text is complex human and divine together great yeah that's 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 uh it's kind of the on the journey joey and i have been going on that's kind of what we're finding oh would you agree to that joey oh yeah for sure yeah yeah it's great it is great to know that there are churches out there that are okay with wrestling with the scripture because uh you know i i always uh i always find that i gravitate to people who don't have it all figured out (laughs) as opposed to people who claim they have it all figured out as far as far as uh, as far as faith goes that's that's awesome I'll have to, to look into the Episcopal Church a bit more Joey yeah. well, please do and let me also say that I've learned some of my best lessons about wrestling with uh-huh. God and wrestling with the text in synagogue right okay. uh, I participate in the reconstructionist uh, expression of Judaism and in my congregation uh, the the Devar Torah, the sermon, if you will, is congregational. Someone leads it and starts it off, but we sit there as a community and wrestle with the text. And because we read the the Torah through, mm-hmm. um, that means the things in the weeds that people might want to skip about this kind of sacrifice and that kind of sacrifice and these kind of laws about what happens to raped women. And so we, on a weekly basis, sit down and discuss what it means that this is the scriptural heritage of the community and how that affects contemporary ethics and living in a meaningful way. And uh, that experience has taught me a lot about wrestling with Scripture, not discarding it, but staying in relationship to it because it is an inheritance. Mm-hmm. Great, and there's, there's so much to unpack here. And, uh, and if you don't mind, I, I would love to have you all expand on, on this kind of, kind of stuff in future, in future podcasts because there's certain things that I would, uh, I would love to unpack. But... Um, <laughs> In, well, the, sure. in the in the uh, essence of time here, I'm gonna kind of put a note in here and say there's there's definitely things I want to discuss further. But uh, we're here to talk about the History Channel's presentation of the Bible, and it's been praised in a lot of areas. It's been kind of made fun of in a lot of areas, and it's been frustrating to a lot of people. For me in particular, it's been pretty frustrating, especially as someone who's trying to dig in deeper to the Bible and and was hoping you know there's all you always hope that a piece of entertainment will go a certain way. And since it was on the History Channel, I was hoping they would at least try to go a historical route. Uh, and some things they kind of do, but it it's just seems to be a big kind of just a, con- condes- uh, just a condensed version of what the uh, evangelical uh, community kind of uh, preaches the Old Testament leading into the New Testament. Um Let's just start off with the first episode when you started blogging about about the Bible episode. You put up some, you put up your 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 tweets. You were live tweeting on Twitter. What were your initial reactions once you once you sat down and started watching the show? Dear God, <laughs> so I I love movies and I love television. So I like special effects, and so I was. Uh, enjoying sort of the storm and the sea and the reconstruction of the ark. So uh, I was drawn into that. Um, But as soon as Noah opened his mouth, well, really more than that, when I saw (laughs) the white faces, I said, okay, I mean, I know that American Christianity does this, but this is also one family. I hadn't quite given up on uh, 
the Israelites looking like what scholars classify them as Afro-Asiatics. But when Noah opened his mouth with that Scottish brogue, I, I did have a sort of uh, facepalm moment. Um, so I was very frustrated. And as more characters came in and it was very clear that this was a Eurocentric uh, retelling, and I did use the word whitewashing mm-hmm. on my post. That was my, my first uh, overwhelming piece. And then as I watched how they moved from narrative to narrative, taking note of what they included, what they excluded, um, their track, uh, you said yourself, the, the using the Hebrew Bible to get to the New Testament. I did have a conversation with a producer when this was uh, more on the drawing board uh, more than a year ago, and at that time, uh, the scheme was to do five episodes on Hebrew Bible, five ep- episodes on New Testament. I realized that that has changed, and, right. and my current blog post uh, in development is about the implications of doing two and a half episodes of Hebrew Bible and seven and a half New Testament, which is a complete inversion of the actual pagination in most people's Bibles, uh-huh. and talking about what it means that Jesus, who is, of course, the the heart of the Christian story, uh, that the Bible of Jesus is the Hebrew Bible, and that when Jesus preached the gospel, he used the Hebrew Bible, um, and that there are people today who think that to preach the Bible means you must use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but that's not what Jesus did. And so they're cutting out the scriptural legacy that made Jesus who he was. Uh, you know, when Jesus teaches, he says, look, read this. This is what it says in the prophets. This is what is written. Jesus doesn't say, look, throw this stuff out. I have a whole new plan, right? Uh-huh. So they're not even faithful to Jesus's own self-understanding. Yeah, definitely. That that first episode, uh, when I saw the, uh, the, you know, the Garden of Eden and there's two, it looks like they had grabbed two models out of like Abercrombie and Finch or something, yeah. <laughs> you know. And, that, and let's not forget that the the uh, the Satan character that they introduce is a right. Middle Eastern man. So the first time they do that, and, and let's, let's take that Genesis episode, sure. because mm-hmm. it is the traditional evangelical teaching, and not just evangelicals, many Christians teach that Satan is in the garden. But the Bible does not say that. What the Bible says is that the serpent is there, and the serpent is identified as a creature that what God has made, and God has made this creature to be uh, crafty and intelligent. Um, So there is a God-made creature in the God-made garden. But in terms of humankind, and they do this also in a flashback on the second second episode where they go back to uh, the the first human, um, in Hebrew, uh, the human being comes out of the humus, or the earthling comes out of the earth. The traditional translation God created a person from the dust doesn't get the pun between the Adam and the Adama. Uh-huh. So the human is dirt colored and the dirt in biblical Israel, just like contemporary Israel, is, as you have alluded, uh, the same dirt that stretches down to East Africa, where science says human beings came from, connected by the Great Rift Valley. That dirt is deep brown, dark red brown, which uh-huh. is what the Hebrew word means Adam. But what they did was they took some sandy white soil and pulled a sandy white person out of it, um, which completely changes the biblical story. But ironically, sandy white soil is not life-giving soil. You can't grow rich crops. (laughs) If you want rich crops, you need dark dirt. And so they completely undercut the fertility of the garden and the Bible's own articulation of its people. You know, the beauty of David was how dark and ruddy he was, not how pasty and white. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll get into that in a second. I, I actually just finished watching the David story uh, this morning on episode two. Your your article, um, Black Samson and White Women on the History Channel, um, was very was very interesting and and I, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, thank you. Thanks for thanks for writing it first of all because I was looking for any type of art or any, anyone to tackle this in any blog posts or any articles. And I hadn't seen anything. Um, you you first take issue with, uh, the story of Samson in, in episode two. What were your, your first reactions to, to that, to that story? Um, did, did it seem like they were trying to kind of wedge in, um, a, a black character or what, what were your initial thoughts? 
Well, thank you uh, for your appreciation for that post. Um, one of the things I learned as a preacher is that a text without a context uh-huh. is a pretext. So the emergence of Black Samson is connected to the depiction of everyone else as white. So when all of the other characters are white, then uh, the Black character is not just a mark of diversity in the cast. Uh, he's in relationship to those other characters. I also situated with relationship to the uh, divine messengers. Uh, mm-hmm, there's a tradition mm-hmm. of calling them angels. Uh, they used black and Asian bodies there, but what that does is say that the supernatural bodies who are not real people are uh, various ethnic groups. The real people are white. So Samson occurs against those backgrounds. And so all of a sudden you have a village that has lots of people of color, Samson, his mother, some of the mm-hmm. villagers. Um, but this, the context in which that occurs is also the American context in which this production is being produced and financed, and it's the American context in which our first African-American president is being treated with such incredible disrespect. Not just, I disagree with your policies, I mm-hmm. don't think you're leading the nation in the right place. Um, people calling him names, people calling his wife names, using uh, racist and sexist language, right? So. Mm-hmm. What you have is a big black man uh, evoking um, some of the stereotypes of slavery. Oh, blacks are better athletes. Um, Blacks make good field slaves. You have a very big, very dark man um, who is in a character that is known for brute strength over even good sense, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the Samson character is not too bright, but he sure is a big, strong buck, right? And... He is having sexual relationships with women who are white. Now, in this country, we had a phenomenon called lynching. And a black man could be lynched for something called reckless eyeballing, which is literally looking at a white woman in a way that a white man found objectionable. Mm -hmm. So against this background, um, the Canaanite women and Philistine women who are also uh, could have been portrayed as any shades of beige and brown and perhaps some light and white skin are white. So you have a black man sleeping with a series of white women, one of whose bed he's drawn from in chains and goes to his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, against the, the American background and the decision to make the rest of these characters white, that is uh, stands out in sharp relief as a retelling of a classic slave era and lynching era legacy interwoven with the biblical text. We also have to remember that the notion that the biblical Israelites were white people uh, was used by the founders of the United States in pacifying this land and purging it of native peoples who were treated like Canaanites and calling for enslavement of Africans so that the idea that the Israelites and white people and Americans are all the same folk and they can enslave, take land from, and kill black and brown folk is really tied together in the American context. And this production uh, is not reflecting on that critically, but perpetrating some of the worst theologies and stereotypes to emerge from that. From the biblical text and everything, what... What, what race should have should have Samson been? I mean, he was just, they classify him as, as an Israelite, correct? Right. So let me say that race is a modern concept, only about 500 years old. So the Israelites were themselves initially a multicultural, multi-ethnic people. So in their own story, Abraham comes from a place called Ur, which is in Iraq. Now think about that. An Iraqi Mm -hmm. is the father of the people who are now known as the Jewish people, right? So clearly race is not working the way we think. So you have uh, Abraham's descendants. Quite honestly, Abraham's family practices incest, right? Sarah is his half-sister. His uncle marries his niece. Uh, Even Jacob and Rebecca kind of related. So you, you get some... So marrying in, uh, then you, that you have the family of Laban, who's an Aramean, who comes into the mix. Uh, when you look at the 12 patriarchs of Israel, Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Uh, Tamar beca- becomes the mother of the tribe of Judah. Simeon also marries a Canaanite woman. Joseph marries an African woman, Asenat, the Egyptian. 
meaning that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are each half Egyptian or half African. So the Israelite people are coming together from lots of different ethnic groups and nationalities. Mm -hmm. According to the Bible, when the Israelites leave Egypt, a mixed multitude goes with them. Uh, those folk kind of marry in. Remember that in biblical Israel, your identity was determined by your father. In contemporary Judaism, it's the mother, but we're talking about the biblical text, right. which meant that as the Israelites conquered territories and took slave brides, uh, regardless of what their nationality was, the children were counted as Israelite. But of course, that means their mothers could be Moabite, like Ruth, or uh, any kind of ite. I don't know if you use that language in Sunday school. You know, the Hittites, <laughs> the Perizzites, the Hittites, mm -hmm. the ites, right? So Israelite national and religious identity is being formed around their Torah and their God and their worship. But their ethnic identity is coming from all over the place. So do you see how identity yeah. is complicated in Israel? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And they, they were more of a kind of a nomadic tribe. Correct. Right, yeah. Now, what that means in terms of uh, physiognomy, what do they look like, is a different issue. Uh, they would look like the inhabitants of North Africa and Eastern Africa and West Asia, which is where the stories take place. Mm -hmm. So a variety of shades of beige and brown and black. Uh, a good visual approximation is to look at the art of, say, the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the amount of beige and brown and black and sometimes white paint that they use for people. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, uh, their self-portraits are generally in shades of, of beige, brown, and black. Um, those should be uh, the range of skin tones we're seeing. In your article, you also bring up, uh, you bring up gender. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that these stories are, are getting wrong. And, and I'm trying to think of all the female characters we've seen so far in this series. Uh, there's been there's been Sarah. And I'm, I'm trying to remember. I try, I try I watch these as I'm... I got three kids, so as I'm trying to <laughs> uh, feed the kids, something like that, I'm trying to watch these. Um, so I haven't been t paying too much of attention. And then, then, of course, there's Delilah, who, you know, basically sells sell Samson out for money. Right. This, the female characters that they're choosing are women who are um, compromised in some way, who are problematic in some way, or if they're having a problematic moment. They are skipping many women characters, and they're skipping many of the strongest women characters. Uh, and then the way that they're deploying these characters rewrites some of the narratives, right? Okay. So in terms of the Sarah and Hagar story, uh, the Bible says that Sarah abuses Hagar using the verb anah, and the verb anah in Hebrew means to oppress and afflict violently. It is the verb that the Bible uses to say how the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites. So the violence that the Egyptians inflicted on the Israelites, and nobody thinks that was a day in the park, right, mm -hmm. is yeah. the violence that Sarah afflicted on Hagar. Right? But they don't show Sarah as an abusive slave mistress. Mm -hmm. They don't show Hagar running away, literally running to God in the wilderness, who meets her there, saves her life, appears to her, uh, promises her descendants in her own name, uh, and this amazing encounter where Hagar gives God a name. That's an incredibly strong and affirming narrative, and it's removed. Hmm. Uh, in the Moses story, Moses does not make it on his own. Moses is first saved by two Hebrew midwives who refuse to participate in genocide. He's saved by his mother who refuses to kill her own child. He's saved by his sister who works with his mother to get him out of their community. Uh, he's saved by the daughter of Pharaoh who's sort of uh, in the story. Uh, and later in his life, he's saved by his wife when uh, God uh, starts to kill him in the book of Exodus. It's a fascinating story. And his wife realizes, Zipporah realizes, that it's because Moses' circumcision hasn't been dedicated to God, and so she spreads blood on the relevant parts of his body. Um, none of these women are there. And so you can hear in the book of Exodus, Moses is encircled with women who deliver him so that he can be the deliverer. And in their production, Moses does this all on his own. He's, mm -hmm. he's a man. He's a lone ranger. Um, and one more, I will say, sure. uh, the prophet Deborah, who ruled the nation, uh, is absent, and the prophet Miriam is present, but rather than allowing her to be the character the Bible has, which is a strong woman independent of men, 
they've married off, married her off to someone and given her some babies, right? They've domesticated. Hmm. Man, oh man, um, that that story of Zipporah, by the way, is fascinating. I just did a study on it last week. I I was reading, I've been reading for, through the Old Testament, and I came across that segment, and that is a fascinating story. Isn't it? <laughs> I call it the divine drive-by. <laughs> 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 that's brilliant that's brilliant because i mean yeah in the story because you're reading the story the story of exodus and i oh shoot what chapter is that chapter 23 of exodus i can't remember i had it written down um not chapter 23 anyway it, it, it's all of a sudden it says you know and god tries to kill moses which you're like out of the blue whoa what's going on here and, and that's not a great translation uh-huh. it should be starts killing because God is not trying and failing. God is beginning. <laughs> the process is ongoing. Moses is dying. Right. right okay. Right? So, right? It's not God tried and didn't quite get it right. <laughs> God is slowly, you know, strangling, crushing the life out of whatever method God is using. God is slowly killing Moses. Uh-huh. <laughs> slowly. I, I, I imagine the story is, you know, possibly uh, Moses com- comes down with some sort of sickness, right? Some sort right. of uh, infirmity. And his wife realizes... You know why? Why he's sick, and it's because is it because he didn't circumcise their son? No, it's 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 both. Uh, it's the both. son needs to be circumcised, but if you notice, the remedy uh-huh. includes touching uh, Gershom's foreskin to Moses's genitalia. Raglayim uh-huh. feet uh, in Hebrew uh, is kind of the way we use the word bottom. Bottom is not the bottom of our bodies, which would be the soles of our feet. Bottom is actually, you know, our buttocks and our genitalia. So feet, uh, raglayim in Hebrew, is actually your thighs to your ankle and everything between your thighs. So the fact that she touches the foreskin to his own genitalia uh, suggests that he was actually circumcised, but not in the Israelite light way and that it wasn't dedicated to the God of Israel. And so this is sort of a rededication okay. of his circumcision because you can't really take some more off. <laughs> right. And it's basically kind of those – it's only about three verses long. So those right. few verses are kind of showing a turning point in his uh, – in, in not, his, not his, necessarily his ministry, but his – kind of his, the turning point in what he does for for Israel right. as far as it being re, kind of rededicated to, to God in the correct way. Right. And, and Moses is a complicated character, uh-huh. of course. It will go on that he will actually divorce Zipporah. He will send her away in Exodus 18. His father-in-law, Yitro, Jethro, will bring her back and say, dude, I'm here with your family. And it's kind of funny because Moses goes and hugs his neck and then doesn't mention them. Then later in Numbers, Moses has a whole nother wife and uh, Miriam and Aaron get into kind of a fight about it with him. God sort of slaps them all down. Um, and then you wind up with Moses not making it into the promised land. So Moses is a complicated mm-hmm. character, but they don't go into the nuance. They just go into the heroism. Yet they find time to add in this narrative about his relationship with the Pharaoh and maybe a foster brother. And, and they do the same thing with Samson. They add stuff that's not in there. Meanwhile, they're cutting out important pieces of text. I know they had to edit down yeah. because of the time frame, but... If you take something out and you add something that's not there and it further misleads, mm-hmm. I think that's poor uh, editing and poor production. And, and it makes me question what this production is about and certainly why it's on an enterprise called the History Channel. Yeah, yeah. Well, the History Channel has kind of put history by the wayside in the past few years. Do you feel like this production so far is kind of taking away from the nuances of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament? I. I almost, I mean, I, I've watched two episodes, and I'm, I'm going to watch them all, but I'm kind of grudgingly watching them all <laughs> yeah. just to get through them, because I feel like this production is, is, is almost kind of showing the Bible in the wrong light, if that makes yeah. any sense. It's showing the Israelites as just these people who are conquering all these innocent cities, um, it just, and it just shows that they're just conquering in the name of God. It doesn't really show the context. Right, really? and what, and then it sanitizes that because the book of Joshua is, quite frankly, a genocidal text. Uh-huh. Joshua is very clear that he kills women and children, babies at the breast, burns cities to the ground, right, in the name of God. Mm-hmm, and right. they're not doing that. They're just like, our God is making us victorious. Woohoo, sort of like a contemporary praise song. Not really dealing with the implications of holy war that in another religious tradition is called jihad. Mm-hmm. It's called harem mm-hmm. in the Bible. Um, that 
extermination of people as being undertaken in the name of God, and that in parts of the Bible, God is saying to do this to people, mm -hmm. right? So it's absolutely not dealing with nuance. But to be fair, I wouldn't expect a 10-episode show to do nuance. You yeah. have to really drill down uh, into a narrative. I'm also watching it rather grudgingly because I said, as a biblical scholar and seminary professor, I would live tweet and blog occasionally um, as a public theologian to help people frame this. What I'm wondering about, and we will see together, is as they shift into the New Testament, uh, which is clearly going to be the bulk of their series, New Testament narratives are not as narratival, pardon me, as mm -hmm. the Hebrew Bible, right? So you have stories about Jesus encountering people and, and sermons and speeches, but you don't have as much narrative um, in terms of storytelling, remember that the New Testament is roughly 25% the size of the, of the Hebrew Bible. So right. that you have, you know, if you hold your Bible in your hands, you know, you, you've got 20, 30 pages here of the whole story of Jesus. If you put just the Gospels together, it might be even smaller than that. So how are they going to populate these seven and a half episodes? How much material are they adding in? Um, what are the uh, theological uh, presuppositions that they're wedding to the text. And again, this project is being marketed to churches mm -hmm. and schools as a biblical study tool when it is absolutely unscholarly. It's a theological perspective, a set of theological perspectives that are not being mm -hmm. articulated or questioned. Um, so I am kind of curious, uh, but concerned to see where they're going and how they're going to do it. Yeah. Joey, did you look up and see what all uh, the, the scholars were that were involved in, in this production? You... Well, yeah, I was trying to find that list. I couldn't find it right offhand, but yeah. I know I know of one that we follow. I've had some exchanges with, with Mark Goodacre uh -huh. with Duke University, and yeah. I, was, I was quite interested because like, I follow his tweets too, and he seems like he's kind of pro-everything, but... He's, he has some interesting views, too, historically and stuff, and he has some great blogs himself. I was just kind of – I wanted to try to get him on the show here, too, because he, he's – you know, he had some input into the show as well. Um, and I, I just – I wonder, like, scholars – you know, as scholars, what do they say? Have you had any pushback for your views or your thoughts of what you've written? Or is everyone pretty much like, yeah, you're right? <laughs> I have to say the scholars in my networks on Twitter and Facebook – uh, to a woman, to a man, uh, black scholars, white scholars, Asian scholars uh, are all agreeing with me, all supporting me, uh, all horrified. Um, I <laughs> should say that I know Mark tangentially. Uh, mm -hmm. I did my Ph.D. Uh, at Duke. We're not uh, in, in conversation, just our lives are in different places. Um, but uh, I think what this project shows broadly, this is not about Mark per se, and I don't know who the rest of the, the people are, is that it's very, privilege is a thing that blinds. And so when your culture has already recreated the images of the divine in your own image, you go into most churches um, and you see white images, not Middle Eastern or Palestinian images, you think that's normal. You're drinking the Kool-Aid, you believe that. And so if you have a project like this and you don't have anyone with different perspectives, there's no one to challenge the assumptions of your privilege. So I am not saying that Mark per se or any other scholar is intentionally engaging on in a pernicious practice, but that's the way that institutions work. That's why we talk about institutionalized racism and not uh, individual racists, because the system is well, these are the images we have in our head of what Jesus looks like. And by the way, they look like me. Um, and so that when the actress who was supposed to play the older Virgin Mary uh, was not able to be in the production, Roma Downey could say, oh, I'll do it because everybody in the production looked like her anyway. So there's no reason that she couldn't have been the mother of Jesus since the whole cast was white anyway. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, I was a little skeptical when I saw the previews for uh, Jesus with his uh, Brad Pitt smile, you know, when he looked like Brad Pitt to me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It'll be just in interesting, interesting to see where they go but where they go with that. But they, they do say that he is uh, Portuguese, yep. the actor. Right. right, and they tried to say that that was Hispanic. Yes, well, you know, Portuguese <laughs> speak Portuguese, not Spanish. But, right. but Portuguese are European, right? Uh -huh. they, they, yeah. He's not Mexican. He's not Guatemalan. I mean, even if they had done sort of like an American uh, multi-ethnic cast and 
uh, let's again take it out of the History Channel and let's say, you know, we're going to ca cast some Mexicans and Guatemalans and Nigerians and uh, South Sea Islanders. We're just going to have this cast reflect all of the peoples that are now involved in the in the Christian story. That would have been an interesting approach. But to call it a historical production and then move it into a continent, uh, remember that you don't even have Europeans involved in the story uh, until you get to uh, Alexander the Great, and by the way, they're skipping all of that. So pe you mentioned how much some Christians don't know the Bible story. People don't know how you get from Egypt to uh, the Assyrian domination, to the Babylonian domination, to the Persian Empire, to mm -hmm. the Greek Empire, to the Roman Empire, and they're not going to get any of that figured out. <laughs> now, I was going to ask you this. Have you seen, there's a project called the Lumo Project, where they actually do cast... Um, it looks like a, a largely a Palestinian Middle Eastern cast as Jesus and his disciples. Have you heard about this project? No, I'm not aware of it. I'd love you to send me a link when we're done. Yeah, I definitely will. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for it to come out. It's, it's supposed to come out in, two, in 2014, so next year. And it's definitely not as you know dramatic as the History Channel's uh, production. But it looks, and I saw there's a, a video. And I don't know if somebody took scenes from, because they kind of released these in, in teaching segments, you can buy like a certain story for like twenty dollars right now that are done. But I think they're going to actually give you know, have a full production done next year. So it looks like they took a bunch of of the clips and edited them. Edited, I can't even talk. Edited that. Edited them down into a music video uh, for Natalie Grant's song "Alive," and that's mm -hmm. when I first saw it. I saw it last year around Easter time, oh. and I was almost in tears because. I had, was looking at, you know, not a handsome man. Um, definitely, I'm 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 very bad at determining, you know, anyone's ethnic backgrounds. But someone looking the part of a Middle Eastern man, mm. and it was very, it was almost, it was more powerful, I think, than anything that I'd ever seen any sort of production about Jesus. Even you know, from Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, all that stuff. Just a small little three minute, you know, music video was was powerful. Do you think, do you feel like, do you think people are missing out on that sort of oh, reaction? Absolutely. absolutely. One of my teaching resources is uh, photographs from the American colony in Jerusalem from uh, the end of the 1800s to the beginning of the 1900s and really right up to the formation of the state of Israel. And I show those pictures to my seminarians uh, to do what I call repopulating their heads because mm -hmm having gone to churches where they had vacation Bible school and they've got, you know, blonde Jesus in the windows, I want them to see what the people look like who lived in the land uh, before the most recent wave of European immigration. And they are stunned to see um, uh, uh, indigenous uh, Palestinian Bedouin folk. I actually think the Bedouin are a great uh, group of people to look at in terms of uh, how you want to cast a film like this. Mm -hmm. And they see people uh, that they recognize that they would say are black, people who, you know, who are brown, and uh, just just to have a variety of, of what we might call Middle Eastern or even in some cases Mediterranean uh -huh. faces and facial features to, uh, to populate these images. Um, and it's very powerful for them. That's great. I, I'm really, I'm, you know, I, I would love to see, who, who knows, how things in the future will will you know transpire with this, but I would love to see, just as a you know just kind of as a, a newly found history nut, um, you know just just these past two years I've become way more into history and and learning more about culture. Would you say the same thing, Joey? Oh, for sure. You know, actually, we we talked about this. Like, you know, you get to a certain point in your faith where you just you figured it out, and then when you realize, you get introduced to some scholarly work. And I think you know you have to thank the internet too, because I mean, you and I talked about this ten years ago. Without the internet, like you never think of unless you went to a college specifically to you know learn this stuff, or you know where could you get this this teaching material? You know, you're gonna pay seventy five dollars at a college to get this, you know, what are DVD set or even what at the 10 cassette tapes or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I find it more interesting now. And, and it's, it's, you realize around you, the people around you are clueless. If you have conversations with them, that stuff, it's like almost like the first time they ever heard it. And you realize, hmm, something's wrong here. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, the way that 
Christian clergy are formed and then in turn form congregations can be really problematic. We have whole sections of, of Christendom which are either not seminary trained or are trained in a type of Bible college that advocates uh, recitation of text, kind of like a Christian madrasa, rather than getting into some of the history and archaeology underlying a text, particularly when it conflicts. Um, and then we have folk who are, say, trained at mainline seminaries who say, oh my goodness, these are not, this is not the way the people in my congregation think about the Bible. They'll fire me. And so then they go and they preach as though they are unlettered and unlearned themselves so that we have such a disconnect from biblical studies, uh, from the academy to the congregation in some contexts. But there are a few of us who are very active in churches, who teach in churches, who lecture in churches, and in the academy, in seminaries, and help our students to cross those bridges. And the truth is people uh, are interested in the Bible, uh, would love to know some of the history behind it, and are mature enough and smart enough to wrestle with complex issues if you help them and frame them. Do you, do you feel like a lot, of, a lot of modern churches are kind of doing their congregations a, a disservice by not encouraging kind of diving deeper into scriptures as far as like history and stuff like that goes? Absolutely. And, and the irony is, as you know, you know, the Bible is the best-selling book and there are all these biblical resources being sold and there are all of these conferences and videotapes and materials. But when you listen to them, a lot of them are kind of slogans and jingoistic. Mm -hmm. And even when it's, you know, we're going to have this conference and go deep into the word, sometimes it's esoterica. But it seems like the one thing that people don't want, um, as you may know, I teach uh, biblical languages. I teach mm -hmm. biblical Hebrew. And every once in a while, if the opportunity presents, I'll get to teach uh, Aramaic. And when I talk to preachers and seminarians, you're like, oh, doc, I don't have time for that. And I'm like, well, you sat there and said that, you know, the Bible is the most important document to the Christian faith, and you want to go deep into the Word, but you don't want to be able to read it for yourself? Yeah. that You know, um, gosh, this is something I would want to dive in further, and maybe we'll kind of tease it here and dive further at a, in a, you know, at a future time. But what are some, like, say, in, in the context of, of what we've seen in the Bible series so far from the History Channel, what are some of the biggest kind of, not disconnect, but say you go back to the original Hebrew, right, and compared to what we have in our English Bibles, what's mm -hmm. one of the biggest changes you've seen or just something that is, that most Christians think happened a certain way, but actually if you look at the Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew, it comes out, it comes across totally different. Um well, I would say the biggest one, ba based on their narrow selection of what they've even put <laughs> right. screen, um, is the creation of humankind. Um, the Adam, uh, in the Genesis story, it is Ha-Adam, the Adam, which mm -hmm. is a creature, not a man named Adam. Right. The first earthling is a um, probably uh, uh, hermaphroditic or... Uh, uh, some kind of plural person uh, that is not gendered in a traditional way. Um, the biblical text says that God removed Selah. A Selah is a side, not a rib. So many people understand that God sort of split the thing in half, um, you know, the long way. And the other places that that word Selah, side, is used in the Bible include things like the temple door. So you have this idea of double swinging doors. Mm -hmm. So they're each the same size, right? Uh, or the side of a hill or the side of the sanctuary or the side of the Ark of the Covenant. So it never means like like rib. I don't even know where this comes from. <laughs> so, so this idea of taking a pluripotent uh, being that is not quite gendered and the M at the end of Adam frequently indicates uh, a plural entity in Hebrew that the Adam, which always occurs with the prefix that means the, um, as in the human or humankind, uh, eventually will become Adam without the the, uh, the uh, gendered male only after the creation of the gendered female that is sort of split apart um, from it. Mm -hmm. And the creation of that woman as an Ezer um, Konegdo, uh, um, a helper that's appropriate. We have a hard time with that word helper in English because helper in English is subordinate. Mm -hmm. So like a, like a laborer's helper or a, or a plumber's helper, that, you know, the teacher's helper is the little kid who follows her around. Well, that word help 
in Hebrew uh, is applied always to God. So that the person, you know, if you think about the psalm, I look to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Holy One of old, right? That God is that supernatural help, and that's the capacity the woman is created in, Mm -hmm. uh, not to be uh, his burden bearer, cook, and cleaner. Um, So their understanding of the Genesis uh, episode has nothing to do with the textual basis of the creation story. I'm taking kind of a uh, a Yale University uh, course on the Old Testament with uh, Christine Hayes is the professor. Okay. And we 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 uh, I learned a lot about the kind of the creation story in Genesis and kind of the same thing we learned about the uh, the Adam. Um, it's interesting because the she says a lot of scholars will say that the, the that the creation story was kind of uh, taken from the the Israelites from an older myth and there is that actually a creation story where. A certain god. I don't know if he's re- they're wrestling with another deity, but they that other deity is defeated, and he splits that deity in half. And right. Out of so that, that's the traditional Babylonian story uh-huh. of the creation of the universe from the carcass of Tiamat, uh, the right. dragon goddess. Uh, and so there are hints of that in the story about uh, that God's creation is over the deep, that word to home Mm -hmm. for the deep. Some people see that as being related to the word of Tiamat. And there's some other connections back and forth with that Babylonian story. And and some say that the Israelites compose this story in response to that story when they're in Babylonian exile as a way of forming their own children. I know this is how they're telling you the world came to be, but these are our stories. So Mm. there's that kind of notion. Mm. That's interesting. it, it, you know, it, it does say in the Hebrew, it says the Adam, what, di- when the woman is created, does it, is Eve like a, like a person's name in that text or is it more kind of general at, general so like one? Uh, when uh, the woman is created, Ha'isha, you don't mm-hmm. get the name of Hava uh, that becomes uh, Eve because the Greeks didn't know what to do with these uh, guttural letters. So they mm-hmm. just, they only kept the, the V sound in the middle, dropped both ends of that, um, that, uh, uh, the Adam, or at this point, Adam, names her as the mother of all living. So the naming comes later, but it's mm. uh, uh, Haisha, the woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Man, oh man, Joey, my brain's getting fried with you. <laughs> I agree, man, but this is good stuff. This is really good stuff. I'm just I'm just more fascinated with, uh, you know, I know you read in, in the original language uh, the Old Testament and stuff. Uh, is there a... An English translation that you actually enjoyed the most. Um, I know we, um, you know, most evangelicals will always, you know, vouch the King James version. But then you have to ask which version of the King James, you know, um, the different well, translations. As, that. as an Episcopalian, as an Anglican, uh, yeah. I like to remind Protestants that the original King James in 1611 was a Church of England production, right. which means it has all of the books of the Bible, unlike those uh, shortened up KJVs that people carry around now, not realizing right. that they've thrown out a good chunk of the scripture. <laughs> Um, But in terms of translation, uh, my honest assessment is the best translation is the translation that the preacher or teacher produces right before she teaches or preaches, which is why I translate myself. Uh, But for those who don't do that, uh, I have a couple of recommendations. In terms of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, uh, a man named Everett Fox who translated under the rubric, the five books of Moses. Lots of Bibles are called the five books of Moses, so you need to look it up under Mm -hmm. Everett Fox. Um, Has probably the best, most nuanced translation from Hebrew. And what he does is, for people who don't read Hebrew, is he explains the names and puns, right? And so they call that place Gilgal. Why? Because Gilgal means round. Oh, okay. Like, you know, Mm. you have all these Bible names that sound foreign to you, but they are significant to the story. And he teases that out for you. Um, A second really fine uh, translation is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. That's an important translation because it is intentionally a revision of the old RSV after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me remind you that the Dead Sea Scrolls include the oldest known biblical manuscripts. After the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and translated, there were, I want to say, 
80 or 90 corrections to the biblical text as a result of passages we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we either didn't know about or only knew through sources we were not sure how to evaluate. So the NRSV is the most complete contemporary scholarly translation of the Bible. Hmm. So I would leave you with those two. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and add those to the show notes. And uh, so if you're interested, definitely look up Everett Fox. And uh, yeah, the, the New Revised Standard Bible is actually, that's the newest translation that I bought just because I was reading a lot of uh, Bart Ehrman books and that's uh, what he had suggested. So it's good to know. <laughs> and I would say the, the NRSV is uh, like the King James in terms of it's a translation uh-huh. in the thousand and one editions, you know, a women's study Bible, a green Bible, a teen Bible. So the edition of the NRSV that I would commend to you and to your readers is the one that I co-edited mm-hmm. called the People's Bible. And the People's Bible is a Bible that takes the best contemporary scholarship from people around the planet that share the Bible as a resource. Mm-hmm. So our general editors were me, an African-American, uh, a Japanese-American, a Native American, Uh, and some Anglo-Americans, and our contributors came from uh, every ethnic group, and the Bible includes a series of articles on how to read the Bible from the perspective of your own culture. Uh, As Latinos, we also had a Latina uh, editor, uh, general editor, Uh, as Latinas and Latinos, as Asians, as women, as African-Americans, wrestling with the uh, imperial constructions of the Bible. Uh, So this is a Bible that I really recommend because of the scholarship that goes in looking not only at the history and context of the Bible, but taking seriously, we all come to the Bible out of our own culture and gender identities and holding those things in conversation. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, about your books, um, Dr. Gaffney. Let's, I'm very interested in, in Daughters of Miriam, uh, Women, Prophets in Ancient Israel. Um, when, when was that written and what kind of spurred you on to write that? So, uh, I've been writing it my whole life is what it feels like. Uh, (laughs) When I was in seminary, I had a beloved Hebrew Bible professor, Gene Rice at the Howard University School of Divinity. Uh, he is still very much alive for which I give thanks to God who was writing a commentary on Kings, and he was also my Hebrew professor, and seeing some gifts in me, he really nurtured me and and mentored me. And I think it's important to say that many of us who are women in biblical studies uh, were mentored by men, and many of us who are people of color were mentored by people from the dominant culture. Mm. So he asked me to do some research on the oracle of a prophet named Huldah. I said, well, who's Huldah? Well, go to the library and find out. And so I discovered this narrative in 2 Kings about this woman prophet who worked for one of the kings of Judah. I was like, I thought those were all men, you know, like David had Nathan and Hezekiah had Isaiah. Well, apparently Josiah had Huldah, but somehow that hadn't trickled down to my biblical knowledge. Hmm. That project for him became a paper, which another professor Uh, had me read at the regional meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, the scholarly organization of real professional biblical scholars. So here I am as a seminarian with my knees knocking. (laughs) That paper then turned into an application uh, to the graduate program in religion at Duke University. It then turned into my dissertation and was revised into my first book. So I've been writing it in one way or another Mm -hmm. for, you know, 15 years. Um, so awesome. it is, I, I started with the question of who are the women prophets and what, if anything, do they have in common? And so I started with a very simple methodology. Anybody, any woman, the Bible said, was a prophet either using the noun form, uh, nivya, or engaged in the work of prophesying using one of the verbal constructions of the verb navi. In other words, if the Bible says she's a prophet, she's a prophet. Now that might seem simple, but in some of the male stream scholarship, there was a tendency to say, well, this text identifies so-and-so as a prophet, but she really doesn't count because of. And by the time they were finished, they had wiped half of them off, right? Hmm. And I said, let's just say that the persons who wrote each section of the text meant it when they said these people are prophets. What does it look like? And so what I realized is that women in prophecy occur at every phase of the Israelite story and every part of the scriptures. And because of that, When you have a grammatical uh, construction that's plural, God says, I have told you how to behave through the prophets of old, something like that, Mm -hmm. that 
that should not be read as masculine plural because grammatically it includes women. So when God says, I have warned you through every prophet and every seer, God is saying, I've warned you through every male prophet, every female prophet, every young prophet, every old prophet. So looking at some of those plural occurrences, realize that women prophets are sort of hidden in the tradition. Hmm. I also looked at the tradition of women who are prophets around Israel in the ancient Near East and realized that there's a great and wide tradition that the Israelite women prophets uh, fit into and looked a little bit at some of the other uh, professions, if you will, what other guild activities that women participate in, um, funeral mourning, uh, and I found the scribal tradition, which was interesting because I was, I was not prepared to think about uh, there being literate women in the ancient Near East with, with any numbers. And there's a huge raft of women who've served as scribes uh, in Assyria in particular. Uh, and then lastly, I looked at how the subsequent traditions, religious traditions, evaluate the women prophets. So I looked at Jewish rabbinic literature and at Christian uh, New Testament and uh, early uh, patristic literature. And so the rabbis recognized women prophets and they said, oh, there's even more than that. And they add some women from the Bible uh, into their list of prophets because of how they behave. Mm -hmm. And so I took those expansions and said, well, let's go back and see, should we add anybody else? And looked at the occurrence of prophets in the New Testament and descriptions of women among prophets in some early uh, Christian context. So uh, that's that work in a nutshell. Um, I'm looking forward to checking it out. I just uh, I just added it to my Amazon wish list. So I'll be reading that soon. <laughs> I'm looking forward okay. to it. Do you find, um, we're going to probably have to wrap up pretty soon here, but do you find that, because the Old Testament seems to be very, you know, gets a reputation for, for being a very masculine book, right? Sure. The, that, that culture, the Israelite culture, I mean, these men have multiple wives and, and things like that. Do you, do you find that that was a product of its, of its time, of the culture back then? Is that something that's being mistranslated now? Sure. I, I think there are two things to note. One is that the contents of the Bible and the context of mm -hmm. the Bible are absolutely androcentric, that is male-focused, uh, very often patriarchal, and even occasionally misogynistic, just hateful and despicable to women and their bodies. Mm -hmm. But that's not the whole story. In those texts, there are also stories of women with amazing power, voice, and agency. Mm -hmm. And because they are so rare and so important, I think it matters uh, that we tell them as well. And so when we focus on the men of Scripture and the great men mm -hmm. of Scripture, then we lose sight of these women. Uh, so what does it mean for a woman like Deborah to rule the nation in a period where it, later on in the same book, um, a woman's going to be cut up into parts and, and mm. mailed out in, in packages, or another mm -hmm. one's going to have her throat slit by her own father and be sacrificed like she's a sheep, right? So that in the book of Judges, you have both of these sets of stories. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we, we neglect them to our peril. But it is also the case that um, the biblical texts are set in the Iron Age, and some of them are the memories of the Stone Age. Mm -hmm. And their theology is likewise Iron Age and Stone Age, right? We know on one level that when the text says something about the four corners of the earth, most of us have moved on and realized the text is wrong in its understanding of the shape of the earth. Mm. Some of us have moved on when the text says, oh, this child has a demon. We understand that epilepsy is not a demonic affliction, right? right. We understand, most of us, that mental illness is not a demonic affliction. But some people have not yet moved on uh, in terms of understanding that some human beings are supposed to be subordinate to other human beings based on their ethnicity, appearance, or gender. Um, so I think it helps to remember that the Israelites are experiencing, uh, if you believe in, the, in Scripture as a religious document, are experiencing God in their own culture and language. And I argue that there are some things that they're not equipped to hear or understand. Hmm. So when I read a text that says that God told Moses, you know, the men can go over and take those unmarried girls right there and bring them home, um, I'm not actually hearing God. I'm hearing somebody say, well, of course God said that because that's what we do. We believe that. God wouldn't say anything different because everybody knows that's how the world works. Like for me, 
I don't believe that God used to think it was okay to abduct and rape teenage girls, but now God agrees with the, most of America that says well, we've got to do something about pedophiles, right? Mm. I don't believe that God changes like that. So uh, I look at that as an example of the text being limited by the culture of the people that received it, edited it, and passed it on. Now, I understand all Christians don't experience the text that way, so I'm speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. Man, brain exploding right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, I'm, we're going to uh, wrap up the show here. Um, unfortunately, I would. I, this is like one of those things I'm fast. This is the stuff that I'm fascinated in right now. So I can talk to I can talk to you all day about this, Doctor Cavney. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm enjoying um, this conversation, and you've you've hit some of my passions as well. <laughs> Theological education, getting young men like you thinking critically about uh -huh. the text, wrestling with it, and yes, maybe into somebody's Episcopal church. You don't know. I'd love to continue to talk to you. <laughs> well, I, I would love to continue more conversation at a, at a future time. There's so much that we um, unpacked even in this, this short little episode. So uh, you're on my list, Dr. Gaffney, of, uh, as consultants. So <laughs> I, I would love to talk to you in the future if you'd be open to it. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and if you can just let everyone know where, that, uh, where people can find you online. Okay. You can find me on willgaffney.com. That's W-I-L-G-A-F-N-E-Y.com. And I have author pages at Amazon. You can link to all of my other stuff, Huffington Post and everything from willgaffney.com. Perfect. All right. Um, Joey, did you have anything else before we close out the show? I just want to thank you, Dr. Gaffney, for your time today. It's been very educational and eye-opening. My pleasure. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Hope you guys enjoyed just kind of a straight conversation. Uh, no musical breaks or anything like that. I just figured there's going to be so much uh, information that I didn't want to, you know, break up the show at all. So thank you for listening. Uh, we'll talk to all of you next week. We haven't figured out exactly what we're going to dive into next week, but... Uh, you know, check back on the website at theaxpx.com. Also check our Facebook, facebook.com slash theaxpx for, for more information on what's going on for next week. Uh, again, huge thanks to uh, the Reverend Will Gaffney, PhD, for being a guest on our show. And definitely check out her blog. It's a, it's a very, very great read. Uh, and with that, all of you have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>